Hello and welcome again to the Creative Careers in Medicine podcast. I'm Andrew Bracing. In this series, we chat with doctors and health professionals who forge all kinds of fascinating careers and pathways for themselves in and alongside medicine. My guest for this episode is Dr. Fiona Lander, a Perth-based doctor currently working for McKinsey & Company, a consulting firm, but someone who has an absolutely fascinating CV um, and one that um, was really enjoying uh, the chat um, talking about her journey through from having studied uh, medicine and law concurrently at university uh, through to working at the United Nations, ultimately, may, ultimately, I should say, making the decision to step away from clinical medicine, certainly for the time being, not perhaps for forever, um, and the kinds of opportunities that she has been able to take along the way. It was a really fascinating chat and she's got a really, lot of really great advice and perspective um, to offer uh, for people who might be looking to blend medicine with another career uh, or to step off the beaten track. Before we get to that one though, uh, just a quick reminder, the CCIM 2020 conference is right around the corner. It's happening December 12 and 13. It's a virtual event this year, sadly. Um, we won't be able to get together for the conference as we have in previous years, but there's a lot of measures being put in place to ensure it's still going to be a fun, informative, inspiring and invigorating event with a great list of speakers uh, that are going to be involved, including a keynote address from Dr. Carl Kruselnicki. So if you've not already registered, you can still head over to the CCIM page, creativecareersinmedicine.com. Follow the links to the events page where you can purchase your ticket. And while you're there, if you've not already uh, become a member, you can learn all about the CCIM membership program and all the benefits that come with it. So with that bit of housekeeping over out of the way, on to my conversation with Dr. Fiona Lander. Fiona Lander, so much, thank you so much for, for joining the CCIM podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you online. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, you're someone who wears a, a lot of different hats, which, um, of course, we'll get to because um, there is a lot to cover. But your principal role currently, um, as I understand, is an engagement officer for the consultancy firm McKinsey & Company. Um, you're based over in Perth. Can you tell us about your work in that role and what does it entail and sort of what attracted you to, to the field of health consultancy that you're currently sort of focused on? No worries. So, um, yes, I'm indeed an engagement manager with McKinsey. So I have been with McKinsey for four years now. Um, I started off as an associate in a healthcare practice and have been a manager now for about 18 months. Um, my work with McKinsey spans across uh, the whole of healthcare, actually, both in Australia and beyond. So within Australia, I've done work for private healthcare insurers, for the federal government, for uh, community health providers. Um, it's really spanned across the whole um, healthcare spectrum. And I've also had the opportunity to work on uh, projects overseas as well. So just last year, I did a um, hospital provider strategy in Africa, which was terrific. Um, as part of my role as manager, I asked, you know, managed teams, <laughs> pretty yeah. self-explanatory. Um, so normally in a standard sort of McKinsey engagement or study, as we call it, we'll have, you know, a team of a few consultants on the ground working with the client. Um, and what I'll do is act a little bit like a registrar. Um, so I come up with the plan for the study. I assign work out, different work streams to the consultants. Um, we do all of the analysis and the diagnostics that we need to do and come up with a plan for our client, whether it's a business or government or, um, you know, whatever the case may be. 
What sort of, I mean, it's interesting you talk about some of the, um, you know, international work that you've been done. Like, this is sort of a theme across um, some of your, the background stuff, having looked into and doing a bit of research into your, your career and your background. Um, you've spent a lot of time working sort of with various organisations in, in, with work outside of Australia. Is that something that sort of attracted you to, to this role, this, you know, the opportunity to, to, to act and, and, and sort of work more globally? Oh, definitely. That's right. So, um, I joined McKinsey not long after I finished my Master's of Public Health at Harvard. Yeah. And what I was hoping to do was continue some of my global work, but, you know, be based out of Australia um, for at least some time, you know, because I've lived overseas for many years. Mm. And as much as I loved it, um, I did really want to um, sort of re- reconnect with Australia and my family in particular. So um, McKinsey was a great opportunity to balance that global work with more of a local focus. Um, and it's been, you know, a really rich experience for me. Um, you know, I did do a lot of work with the United Nations yeah. before I, I made the jump yeah. to consulting. <laughs> yeah, so I started out my career with um, the UN Special Rapporteur for Health, who's a you know, special expert on health and human rights. So I spent two years in India, um, you know, doing missions all over the world, investigating fulfilment of the right to health. And in fact, right before McKinsey, I ended up doing my own mission to get out for a few months um, as an expert, um, assessing how that country was fulfilling its right to health. So, um, you know, it's been a really nice mix throughout my career of that sort of global perspective in terms of um, fulfilling the right to health versus the more local operational work. And can you clarify for me, does it... Your current work, does it allow you any sort of straight clinical work, perhaps on the sidelines of, of your work with McKinsey, or is it, or have you sort of taken um, a bit of a break away from clinical work for the time being? How's that sort of working? Yeah, so McKinsey does allow opportunities to do clinical work. Like the way we normally structure it is in blocks. People will tend to take um, a month or two months off at a time and go back and, and do some work as a doctor. Now, I haven't done that myself for the simple reason that I have been in and out of clinical work pretty much since I graduated in 2009. And after my master's of public health, I realized I probably needed to sort of knuckle down and get really serious about clinical work or recognize that it was probably not going to be my true future path and that uh, my knowledge was no longer (laughs) so current. Um, And that may or may not have coincided with uh, APRA and um, other bodies bringing in probably stricter requirements around recency of practice, Um, you know, which I think was a really important development, right? Um, Because for folks that weren't on training programs and were sort of in that more, um, you know, pre-fellowship stage, it was a little looser for a while there. And I think it's really important from a patient safety perspective to recognise when you are getting to the limits of practicing safely and saying, okay, like, you know, I either need to double down and invest in this or choose a different path. And with my uh, qualifications in in medicine law and my experience with the UN, my Masters of Public Health, like, it just didn't seem particularly sensible to be continuing to invest in that clinical side when I'd gotten a lot of experience there. I loved it, Um, you know, really enjoyed clinical work, but just saw, I I suppose, a different path for myself. Um, so I actually gave up my general registration when I was about a year into my time at McKinsey. Um, but in the last 
year have been put back on the pandemic sub-register <laughs> and am ready to deploy in case things really spiral in, spiral in terms of COVID. So, you know, there, there may be a world in which I consider going back to it in the future, but yeah. I've just found for me personally, um, you know, really focusing deeply on consulting and that more strategic lens of healthcare has been the right choice for me. Yeah. For other colleagues, they've preferred to keep the balance and that's worked really well for them. So there is that opportunity there, but it's interesting that um, that that you say that that, that that ultimate decision to sort of step away from clinical, you know, whether it's for, for forever or just for the short time, uh, for, for the time being, I should say, because it was a topic that came up in the last episode that I, I did with a, with um, Dr. Brandon Carp, who had ultimately decided, you know, that to his, you know, similar to you, that he wanted to focus on consultancy work, and he was set, you know, he was. Um, really interested in talking about the those kind of careers away from the coal face um, are still medical careers and, and still quite valid and important um, health roles that pe- people can be playing and that um, that yeah that, that there is a little bit of a perhaps a stigma attached to stepping away from those roles but there are some some really great opportunities to still be involved by the sounds of it from what from your own experience as well oh absolutely you know and I think that feels like sort of public health, strategy consulting and so forth are, you know, pretty broad church um, where having clinical experience is very, very highly valued. Um, But, you know, it's got like a far greater sort of variety of mix of skills and experience and backgrounds Mm. for people that are working in that space. Um, I do agree with you that there is a little bit of stigma still and getting off what I call the mid treadmill um and you know i think a lot of that is is driven by the fact that the profession is still reasonably conservative and you know it's also a very unusually sort of um safe laid out path right now that might sound a little bit weird to people who are you know doing their best to get on a training program and have had to have multiple (laughs) goes at it you know or who have had to have multiple goes at sitting exams but you know there's actually very few professions where there is such a clear path should you choose to Mm. stick to it Right. Whereas um, the path I've taken is definitely a bit more unorthodox and has had a lot more uncertainty in it. And that actually more closely resembles most people's careers. Right. I think that one of the key, you know, pieces of advice that I would share is that one of the views of medicine is that you can actually genuinely work part time. Um, at least when you get to a certain point in your career. And so there is a world in which you can gradually step away and you can try other things. You know, you don't have to go all in with, I am leaving clinical medicine, I'm starting a new career tomorrow. And indeed, when you look at my pathway since 2009, when I graduated from my degree, Mm. um, you know, two years in India working um, with the UN doing no clinical work, and I came back and did my internship, which I loved, Then I worked as a lawyer for 18 months, but still locoming, um, you know, doing one or two shifts a fortnight in um, the emergency department where I did my internship, and so I've sort of stepped in and out at different points, and it's, you know, given me the confidence, I suppose, to when I did finally make the decision, it was having had a wealth of both clinical and non-clinical experience. Um, it wasn't an overnight decision. Yeah, yeah, which is really important to do. I guess it's because that's the, one of the other really important themes that comes up with, in a lot of these discussions and, and that I have, especially with with people involved with um, uh, creative careers in medicine, that, that it is about it's so important if you are going to make these decisions to go in with your eyes open. I mean, you know, sometimes you've got to take opportunities when they come up, but it's all about making the most informed decision possible, especially when, as you say, in, in, in some respects, the, the careers and decisions that, that people in your line of work can make can be, you know, 
quite important ones that, that are hard to step back from, you know, backtrack from once once they've been made. True, but I think it's also important to recognise that, you know, with the depth of training that we do in medicine, um, it's not impossible to go back. I've yeah, done it many yeah, times. Yeah. And, I, you know, I can absolutely say that the, you know, first couple of weeks that I was back at Royal Perth after doing my Masters in Public Health were pretty hairy. <laughs> it had been a while since I'd yeah. practiced clinically full-time. Um, I was like, you know, can I even remember how to write decent ward round notes, right? Um, and two weeks later, it was like I'd never left. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think that the key there is to have confidence that you, you know, you can come back, but also recognize when you are at the limits of your experience and practice and not be afraid to ask mm. for help. Mm. You know, in many ways, I felt like having a break from clinical um, actually made me a safer practitioner in many ways because I would just be much more open about when something was at the limits of my practice um, and just demand help yeah. <laughs> from my seniors. I, I want to ask you, I want to rewind back to, because we've talked, we've sort of touched on it, your, your background, which was um, studying law and medicine at the same time. But before I do, just, I want to pick up on, on that thing you said about the time away from clinical. Often, oftentimes, and I've, I've had this myself in, in, in my own career where I've, I've taken time away from certain aspects of, of work that I've previously done. It can give you a real um, uh, chance to reflect on it and give you some context for, for when you step back into it as well. Because quite often I find, I've spoken to a number of people who've sort of shared a, a similar experience perhaps, where, you know, you, get, you end up on a, on a you know, career treadmill where you jump out of uni into jobs and into work and training programs or whatever it might be. And sometimes it's a matter of having that time away from it to step back and think about what you actually want to be doing and, and how you might be, be better um, aimed at, at, at approaching some of the things in, in those jobs. And that, that time away can give you that context and, and, and breathing space to do that. Would you agree? Oh, for sure. And I mean, I think that it's something that is extremely important for doctors to recognise about themselves, right? You know, we belong to a profession, um, which is an incredible privilege, but with it also comes, I suppose, a fair bit of pressure. And um, I don't want to say groupthink, but, you know, it, it can sort of be a bit of an echo chamber and it can get mm. quite cut off from the rest of the world. Right. And, you know, I don't know of a single person who has taken time off to travel through Peru or has taken six months off to, you know, experiment yeah. with a med tech startup that has regretted it. Right. Um, for the simple reason that it gives you a phenomenal amount of perspective beyond the hospital wall. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we belong to a profession that is really deeply absorbing, but that does have downsides. And so that ability to, you know, keep that perspective mm. is phenomenally important, even just from a basic mental health perspective. So stepping back to your, you know, pre-career, I mean, you've packed a lot. And I was going to say, having poured over your CV in, in preparation for this conversation, it's, and risk of embarrassing, it's pretty impressive to say the least. But um, I'd like <laughs> to there's you've packed a lot into the last 10 years, I've got to say. But um there are a lot of aspects of your journey since you graduated back in 2009 um, but that we can talk about. But you're, as I think I touched on, you're, you didn't just study medicine, you studied law and medicine, I think it's a double degree if I'm, if I'm right in, under, in, in understanding that. Yeah. Was that a reflection of a specific career path that, or, or, um, or 
was there particular you know whether you know whether it was something like the United Nations and public health was that the the career sort of motivation that they were they were the kinds of opportunities you wanted to pursue and this was how you were going to do it through a program like this or was there other some other kind of driver that sort of led you to take on two such you know huge and, and complex um fields of study concurrently <laughs> so yeah I, I would like to claim that there was a master plan a 10-year plan that i was working to but it certainly wasn't as deliberate as that um and i mean i think that there's sort of two learnings i'd share from my pathway through med law um, firstly being open to opportunities but secondly do your due diligence mm-hmm. um and to illustrate that i mean when i was in first year medicine i wasn't 100 percent sure that it was the right path for me. And i mean i think that that sort of skepticism is healthy at the age of 15 or 18 i mean yeah. you know it's a big decision to be making at that point you know is this what i want to do with the rest of my life and um i you know didn't love preclinical um, what I did find myself very interested in was the um, medico-legal tutorial yeah. um, that we did at Monash, which everyone else seemed to find very boring. <laughs> <laughs> so on the strength of that, I actually decided at the end of the first year of medicine to apply to do the concurrent program. Right. Now, okay. at that point, you could only apply straight out of school. So I'd actually missed the boat. I'd excluded myself from it because yeah. I thought it was too much to take on particularly while I was going to be working um, and supporting myself. Um, so after a year of medicine, I thought, no, actually, I have a genuine interest here. And why not me? You know, why can't I back myself to do yeah. this? So I did two things. I went and did an internship with what was then MDAV, which is now yep. Avant. Yep. Um, so just a week shadowing a medico-legal uh, practitioner um, to understand the nature of the work and whether I'd be interested in it. And um, after a week, I was interested and thought it was something I really wanted to pursue. So the second thing I did was go to the faculty and um, present a case. Uh, I just outlined it very clearly that I thought there were real advantages to coming in as a second year. You know, I'd proven that I could handle the medical load. Um, I'd pr- I had proven interest in it. I wasn't just applying because yeah. I could. Yeah. Um and, you know, I still remember the meeting with the uh, Deputy Dean of Law and he said, well, you know, if you can write a proposal like this that's this convincing, then you should definitely be a lawyer, not a doctor. <laughs> and uh, anyway, it was at that point that I did take up the combined degree and I really had in my mind that I would probably drop one of them a few years in um, because, I, you know, I, I just didn't think that it it's was necessary to, to have yeah. the two. Yeah, that's right. And in the end, actually, what happened was I hit my clinical years and found them a lot more interesting um, on yeah. the medical side. Yeah. And I just really enjoyed my law degree the whole way through. So I did um, three years of med with a few law subjects on top. And I did two years of straight law. And then I came back to my final two years of medicine with, again, a couple of law subjects here and there. And I think the thing that sustained me the whole way through was, you know, having a really clear interest in it and, you know, some idea of where I wanted to take it, although not being completely fixed. And that came back to that point about being open to opportunities. And so, you know, by my penultimate year when I decided actually I didn't really want to be a medico-legal lawyer or barrister anymore, I was actually far more interested in global health work. Mm. That was when I pivoted to doing an internship at WHO in my final year. And then off the back of that, got the job with the UN, which, you know, I took instead of doing my internship. Um, and so... You know, if I'd been really focused on just that original intent I had going into the program, I wouldn't have explored those opportunities, which yeah. I think would have been a real shame. 
Were you feeling pressure at that point, like towards the end of your medical degree? Because as you say, like, there is a very set sort of um, career pathway from the, from the medical perspective of what you are meant to be doing. Once, once you finish, here's what you do or what is the next step. Was there any sort of pressure from, um, uh, from, from, the, from the medical side of things, from any voices saying, no, actually, you need to be doing an internship. You can't be going off and doing this. You, you know, or was it sort of quite supportive? Oh, look, for sure. Um, but I think it's important to note that those voices were countered with people who were phenomenally supportive, and that was really important to me. And so, you know, a couple of key supporters that I would call out, you know, who were really important to me at that juncture of my career were um, the then Deputy Dean of Medicine at Monash, who, um, you know, kindly took a phone call from me on a Saturday when I'd been offered the job um, in India. And, I, you know, I need to make a decision on this pretty quickly because internet applications are coming up. This is, and, the, this is the role you know, with WHO, yeah? Uh, so I was at WHO at the time, but ah. it was a role in India with the special rapporteur. So it was right. sort of an unofficial UN role, which is a whole other story. Um, but, you know, the support of um, the deputy dean as a mentor at that time was absolutely... Um, vital for me because he said, you know, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and I yeah. think that you should take it. Um, similarly, I was very lucky at that point that the administrator in terms of um, internships was quite open to me deferring my internship. Um, and when I had the discussions about the fact that it was really a sort of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and that I could indeed come back and do my internship a year later, they were very... Um, opens that. Um, I think it's fair to say when I then extended my time in India by another year and then came back and the administration had changed and uh, the administrators were very surprised to find that this uh, had been approved. <laughs> um, yeah, at that, that point I had to do a sort of quick reset and some fast talking to, um, you know, convince them that it was a good idea for me to take up my internship, you know, with that two-year gap. Yeah. from having completed final year medicine. And you know, I think at that point, they actually changed the regulations to make it very clear that the expectation was that internship would, um, you know, occur straight after medical school. <laughs> so, you know, there was a so bit of luck there, right? the Fiona right? Lander rules being enforced. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't want to call it the Fiona Lander rule, but they actually did specifically put in the regulations that um, global health placements were not an acceptable reason to defer or intermit yeah. your medical internship. <laughs> and, uh, so I was, I was a little bit suspicious. But, you know, I do think that I was very lucky to have people in my corner at the right time who saw the sort of, you know, value of this opportunity that I had been given. Yep. Um, and that was a very important counterpoint to the inevitable voices of folks, particularly supervisors in my final year, who said, mm, are you sure you're making the right decision here? So we could talk a bit about, you know, we've obviously we've touched on a few times now, your work um, with the United Nations in a couple of different roles. Um, what was those opportunities? I mean, for, for someone with the sort of um, motivations and, and, and ambitions that, that you obviously had from, you know, right through this period, that must have almost felt like a dream come true. I mean, working with the United Nations is, seems seems pretty massive, for, certainly from the outside. <laughs> How did it feel for, for, for you when those opportunities came up? Oh, I mean, you know, it was like a dream, right? And yeah. um, I, you know, was incredibly excited to be able to take on those opportunities, but, you know, also recognised that it was a combination of a phenomenal amount of work to yeah. get there, right? but also assistance from really important people. So, you know, for example, um, one of my 
uh, good friends and colleagues, Alessandro De Mayo, had been lucky enough to do an internship at WHO in the year before me. And I, you know, I approached him to understand how he'd gone about that. And he was incredibly generous in connecting me with some of his mentors and paving the way for me to also um, secure an opportunity like that in my final year. Mm. Um, and, you know, that sort of support is, I think, really, you know, it's genuinely life-changing, right? Um, and it's very important to acknowledge. Um, but, you know, in, in addition to that, it's also, you know, important to be clear on sort of what your individual value prop is and why you want to go and pursue that sort of work. So I was a very competitive candidate for one of those internships because the med law combination was very unusual, right? And, you know, since going to Harvard and seeing some of my friends who've gone on to work with um, the UN or, you know, other multilateral organisations, they've been able to craft a real narrative around, you know, why me? for this job or, um, yeah, so I think that it is really important to start with the why, like what is it that you're really passionate about? What's yeah. the thing that you want to make a difference in? And getting experience in that area that really differentiates you and, you know, sets you up to actually be able to play a really meaningful role on the international stage is absolutely vital. Um but, you know, you've got to start somewhere, right? <laughs> and, um, yeah, you know, and so I think it's a combination of just, like, looking for those opportunities um, locally to then um, be able to transfer those skills globally and, you know, being really deliberate about, um, you know, reaching out to people and jangling the chain and asking yeah. for help. Was there something, was there, I'm just going to ask, was there a particular um, experience or project that you were able to work with during that period that sort of really sort of set in stone that this was something you wanted to, or, or, or reinforced, you know, yes, this is why I, what, what were the highlights during that, that period that sort of might have been formative for you? Sure. So, I mean, I think that my first two years um, working with the UN Special Rapporteur was, you know, incredible shaping experience for me in terms of my career. During that time, we did missions to Ghana, Syria, Guatemala, and indeed even Australia. Um, Very interesting to see your own country from the perspective of an outsider. Um, And, you know, being able to go on those missions and meet with heads of state, health ministers, foreign ministers, um, and indeed, you know, NGO representatives and community members and get a really solid understanding in just the space of a couple of weeks about, you know, what the challenges were confronting that individual healthcare system. Um, that was an incredible experience for me. Mm. Having said that, there were also downsides because, you know, as an independent expert, you come, you make observations, you make recommendations, but you have no power to enforce them. Yeah. Um, you know, you're reliant on the government having the you know, wherewithal and the resources and indeed so the intention. those things that you can... Exactly. Is it, can it be, I guess it can be disheartening by the sounds of it when you see, you know, I'm sure it's, there are, there are good and bad um, that, that come with it, as you say, but um, it must be also disheartening when you see an opportunity there that like, you know, when you look at the, the issues facing a particular um, circumstance that you've been in to review you make the appropriate recommendations and they don't get act, acted upon or it's a watered-down version of it that you know isn't going to quite work. I mean, is that part of the role you need to accept, I suppose? Well, it's an interesting question because it's actually one of the key drivers as to why I made the jump. 
mm-hmm. out of the UN. Um, I think it's an incredibly important institution and it's one that I hope to work for again in the future, um, either as an advisor or, you know, in a direct role. Yep. But, you know, you have to recognise that there is only so much you can do and a lot of it is about influencing certain outcomes. One of the things that I really like about working at McKinsey yep. is that, you know, we are engaged by government, by hospitals, by clients, who have at that point decided that they really need external advice. And it's a great point at which to get real cut through and make genuine change Mm. because it's almost the point at which the the bureaucracy hasn't been able to solve the specific problem that they're seeking advice (laughs) on, you know. And so um, I think that, you know, one of the big drivers of me deciding after my Masters of Public Health to, to not continue in the UN, at least at that point in my career, was because I did feel I could make more impact elsewhere yep. and probably learn a little more elsewhere as well. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's sort of a time and a place for all of these things over oh, the arc sure. of your career. And, you know, you would hope that the, the kind of experiences and, and, and lessons that you learn from from, from every period that you, you of your career that you've been through will set you up for... For, for the ones down the track, if you were to, to you know, ultimately be able to work back at the United Nations, you know, as you, as you have with other periods of your your, your learning and, and working career, that like you've been able to take all of that um, expertise and knowledge and experience and, and apply that to the new situation. I think it uh, it makes perfect sense from the outside to me, I've got to say. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, it all, it all adds up. It's all relevant. Mm. Um, I haven't regretted it, you know, a single one of the jobs I've taken on over the course of my very career um, because it all informs the work that I do today as an advisor. Earlier you mentioned um, when you were getting back into um, medicine that, um, that there was a bit of a readjustment for that transition that you were concerned about, you know, some of the um, – your clinical skills might have been a bit rusty going back in. Was it – did you find the same when you were, when you were sort of – going back and forth between your, the legal side of things? Did you did you find, you know, that, that you might have had a bit too, too, too much time away from that in terms of, I'm just, I guess I'm trying to sort of, how did you juggle those and how, how did it work on the other side? Sure. I mean, I think that the fundamental difference between medical practice versus other professions is that um, in other professions, you don't really have the concept of a cover shift or being on call. Yeah. And so I think that the increased pressure from being on the medical side comes from the fact that in some instances you will literally be the first port of call and your skills being rusty versus not might be the difference between a very bad outcome and a very good outcome, mm. right? Whereas in law, um, in you know, many instances consulting, um, it's just more of a sort of permanent team sport. Um, there's very sort of few instances where you're absolutely on your own and you know, it's like a seconds um, to minutes life or death scenario, yeah. right? So I think that's the big differentiator in terms of what prompts some of that anxiety. Having said that, is there still a period of, you know, getting your eye in, for yeah. want of a better description, <laughs> when you're, you know, jumping game. back and forth? Yeah. yeah, you know, I mean, like, or, you know, you might want to call it code switching, right? Like, yeah. there, there, there is some cost and some sort of time lag every time you do that, right? And, you know, I'm really glad I spent time practicing as a lawyer. You know, I I worked both as a lawyer in a commercial law firm in Australia and got my articles, um, and I also worked for many years in a legal role Mm. with the UN that didn't require me to be, you know, registered as a lawyer, but fundamentally it was legal practice. Um, And 
you know, again, at the end of that sort of period of time, I didn't proceed with keeping my legal registration in Melbourne because um, I just didn't see the need for it, given I didn't intend to be doing um, practice that required the qualification, yeah, yeah. right? Um, you know, the way that I still use my law degree these days is predominantly in teaching. So, you know, I do do some teaching on global health law and human rights, mm-hmm. and there is absolutely some investment required in keeping abreast of developments, um, you know, refreshing presentations, things like that. But it's not the same level of commitment as making sure that you do all of your um, CPD, yeah, uh, you know, the yeah. legal equivalent of CME, and, and, you know, and keeping that qualification live, right? Fundamentally, the decisions around all of this just come down to, you know, the direction you want to take your career in, where you see yourself having the most impact and whether you need um, that sort of formal qualification, like, you know, to what extent do you still need to stay close to that coal-faced um, of practice? Yep. Throughout this whole period, there's been a whole lot of other, I, I think we met, I mentioned earlier, I've made, made reference a couple of times to the amount of hats that you do wear. Like, throughout all of this, um, you've had various board roles as well with, with all these, like, Diabetes WA and, and Red Cross. You've, as I think you mentioned, you've, you've done some teaching and lecturing. Um, you've been involved with the World Economic Forum. What's what was that sort of journey like in terms of getting involved in those kinds of roles? Because you know, given that, that this is all, I mean, you've got obviously a, a lot of experience across medicine and and and, and, and health, but uh, but there's there's a lot of different roles that that you, that you sort of. Um, stepping in and out of throughout this period. How, how did you take those roles? How did those come about? And did you have any sort of um, anxieties about going into them? What were your expectations? Or was it just another, you know, an interesting um, adventure to, to be had? So um, I think there's a few things to unpack there, right? Like, yeah. you know, why, why do I get involved in these roles? Yeah. Um, you know, what is it that I get out of them? Why do I do it? And so forth. Um, and it's quite different depending on the specific roles. So... For example, with the Red Cross, when I was a university student, I became involved with volunteering for Red Cross because I just wanted to do something outside of medicine. Again, coming back to that keeping perspective point, mm. um, you know, volunteering was really important to me, even though my study schedule was very demanding because it did really help me keep things in perspective and keep me a bit sane. Now, the chance to join the board of the Victorian Division of the Red Cross came up after some time volunteering and, you know, I jumped at the chance because I saw an opportunity to really influence a very influential organisation, but one with a, you know, I suppose fairly sort of ageing membership. <laughs> it's a good you know, benefit from, I think, a um, bit of a young person's voice, mm. you know, being in those um, boardrooms, right? So, uh, it, you know, just sort of, I suppose, came about organically and was something that was really helpful for me at that point to, you know, learn about how decisions are made, um, and, you know, a bit more about strategy. It's probably one of the first things that, you know, um, made me interested in strategy. Whereas, you know, fast forward a few years and my experience with, say, joining the Board of Diabetes WA was quite different. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a uh, board of a limited liability company. You know, I have director's duties, um, you know, so it's sort of the stakes are higher. And for that opportunity, I was actually recruited through LinkedIn, through um, a professional recruiter. Um, And that really was a reflection of 
the sort of skills and experience that I'd gained over a period and my connections in the healthcare industry. Um, and so when I came to that role, it was far less of a sort of organic, you know, learning mindset. It was more, okay, what's the intersection between what this organization needs, what I can offer at this point, and um, you know, just being super clear on how my skills fitted in with that of the rest of the board, um, you know, to advance the interest of an organization that's really important to WA. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that the common thread throughout a lot of these experiences of volunteering, being on boards and teaching um, comes down to a few things. Um, firstly, just I think it's very important to give back um, in terms of time, not just money. And so this is a way that I choose to do it. Um, secondly, I find it really energizing. Um, it's a source of renewal for me. Um, and thirdly, you know, there is a benefit from these things as well in terms of broadening your network, developing different skills as well, right? So those three things I think are a feature of all of the different, um, you know, opportunities I've had over time. Yeah. Um, I think one thing I would add is I had very good advice from a friend and mentor after I left Harvard, which is, you know, he said, you, you'll find that over time you're getting more opportunities than you can take on. That's a real shift from your uni days. Yeah. And so being more deliberate about how you spend your time and why you are choosing to spend the time on a particular effort or organisation is just significantly more important. And being able to, it's interesting, it's a similar conversation I had with um, Michael Bonning, um, because he, another person who, who wears a lot of hats and, and sits on a lot of boards and, 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 you know, similarly we have brought up the idea, you know, how do you stay, when do you say yes and no to, to various things and he's someone that tries to say yes as often as he can but it's about sort of trying to then, okay, I've, I'm taking on a lot of these responsibilities. How do I um, give um, enough um uh, of myself to this to make it worthwhile. I'm, I'm genuinely putting enough in to, to make it worthwhile for them as well as myself, which is, you know, and there are different ways to do it. So are there ways that you've um, found it helpful to be able to keep all those plates spinning? Yeah, have a look, it's, it's always the sort of million dollar question in this day and age is, you know, how do you balance all of these things and keep everything in the air? Um, I mean, I think there's a couple of important things. Um, one is I think you'll inevitably learn the hard way at some point and it's not a fun lesson. Um, <laughs> you know, you have all of the plates in the air and at some point one will drop and, yeah. you know, most of the times you'll be okay, but sometimes it won't be, right? And so, you know, recognise that it's, that will probably happen over the course of committing to a bunch of different things, but make sure you learn from it. And I think, you know, the sort of learnings that one would take away to my second point would be, um, be very clear about what you can and cannot do up front in terms of your skills and what time you can and cannot commit. Um, and continue to reiterate that and just be quite clear on your boundaries because people don't resent you necessarily contributing a small amount. What they do resent is if you say you're going to do something and you don't. Right. Um, yeah. And, you know, I remember as a young person being working with the Red Cross and, you know, there were a couple of things where I did take on a bit too much with my medical studies. And, you know, it became apparent to me that, it, you know, it wasn't as simple as just apologising and saying I can't do it. You know, when people are relying on you to yeah. someone something and there's an alternative, then, you know, you've got to step up. And, um, yeah, so, you know, like I said, we'll all learn that the hard way, I guess, <laughs> in 
some ways, but, you know, that really clear signalling and expectations management is the key, I think. Just going back to the point you made earlier, Mia, around getting young voices heard and um, and making the decisions to, to where you're going to put your energy. One of the things that you have been um, most recently uh, become involved with um, is the She Runs initiative, which is a not-for-profit organisation that supports um, or works to support women's involvement in politics, economic and, and civic participation. Um, I'm sure there's a, a broader and, and better uh, explanation or description of, of what you do, but um, it's an incredible mission, um, and I'd argue a vital one given the state of the world right now and, and the, the, the real push for, for gender equity. And, and while not, not a new thing, it certainly seems to be growing uh, far more momentum um, than it has in, in previous years. Can you tell me about how you got involved with She Runs, the kind of people you're working with and the, and the kind of difference in outcomes that, that you are trying to achieve there? Yeah, sure. So actually, um, my involvement in She Runs came directly through my networks with the World Economic Forum. So one of the co-founders um, was a global shaper with me through the World Economic Forum and approached me because they wanted... Um, a balanced board, including someone with strategic experience. Mm. Um, and, you know, She Runs is actually a really great example of the question you asked earlier, like how do you balance your time but also, you know, do the things that you're really passionate about. Yeah. And so I actually took a number of months before joining the board of She Runs, um, you know, to make up my mind because I wasn't sure that I could commit an adequate amount of time. Instead, I preferred to, you know, provide ad hoc advice in the first instance. And then as I got more certain that I would be able to commit a sufficient amount of time, I then formally joined the board but was also extremely clear about what I could and couldn't do. Um, and one of the benefits of McKinsey with it being project-based work is that you'll tend to be very, very busy on a given project, but then there are periods of downtime right. um, when you're not necessarily working on something where you, know, you choose to take a period of time off. So I was able to, um, you know, work with my sort of personal schedule of work to ensure that a period of, um, you know, I guess more downtime corresponded with when we were running the campaign school. And so that was a really wonderful source of renewal for me to be able to go along and meet all of the candidates that we'd selected for the scholarship to the campaign school, um, interview politicians, um, you know, and really immerse myself in that every Saturday morning for yeah. four weeks, um, you know, while we saw these young women who were really unsure about a career in politics or public service um, really grow to understand over the course of the month what was involved and become really excited about their ability to make change. And, you know, when I was making the decision about whether to become involved in She Runs, fundamentally it came down to, you know, is this a massive problem that needs to be solved? And then do I have specific skills that I can really contribute here? And the answer was yes and yes. And so I, I made the space. Right. Um, and I think that one of the reasons She Runs has been so successful is the co-founders were very deliberate about, you know, choosing a really good balance of skills across the board. And it all came together in just a really successful way in the fall of our first campaign school. It's just been absolutely wonderful to see the immediate impact it's had. You know, being able to actually go out and change this really frustrating thing, you know, about yeah. very few women being in politics mm. rather than just talk about it. Have there been sort of some, some wins along, along the way early that, that you've been sort of proud to be able to see or is it more of a, a you know, a gradual thing that you're, you're seeing sort of building? Well, interestingly, we've already had um, impact straight away. Um, I think it was about 
22, 23-odd fellows, um, a number of them have since joined a political party. Um, at the conclusion of the campaign school, the majority have already reached out to politicians to take up coffee chats. Um, right. The level of energy, yeah, I wasn't yeah. even expecting it, and it's just so encouraging. And you realise, you know, get a bunch of people in the room with the right skills, and you can actually change the world pretty quickly. It's, it's uh, quite amazing to witness. Just finally, before I let you go, we, I, th- I think we've, we've, you've already given, so partly answered this question a few times, I guess, in the, in the course of the conversation, but I always like to give the, the guests in this series a, a, a chance to give any advice to graduates or health professionals um, who might be looking to explore the, the same kinds of avenues that, that people, uh, people like yourself have been able to navigate. And, uh, yours is, uh, as we've touched on, a, a unique path and an unusual one in, in, in some ways. Um, and there are different ways to get there. What advice would you give to someone who's wanting to blend medicine with another career like law or to pursue a career in, in public health or, or advocacy or, or consultancy or whatever it might be to, to, to make a difference, but, but blending medicine w- with another career, especially in your case, like law? Yes, I mean, I think I'd come back to what I said earlier, which is back yourself, be open to opportunities, but do your due diligence. and. The, the reason I say that is because making a jump outside of medicine, it's just not as clear cut as a medical career. Like, I think we really do take for granted the fact that as medical students, we more or less have a guaranteed job when we graduate. Like, that's very unusual. Um, when I compare it to law, you know, I think it's something like 30, 35% of law graduates get jobs in commercial firms at the conclusion of their degree. There's just so much more uncertainty. And so if you want to get off the med treadmill, you know, if you want to combine clinical work with other work, there's just so many wonderful opportunities, but it won't be straightforward, right? So you absolutely have to back yourself and go out and do the work and, you know, seek out the opportunities. Um, But, Make sure that you're as well-informed as possible. Speak to as many people as possible. Recognise that, you know, doing an MBA isn't just your ticket to all of a sudden becoming a corporate executive. It's not as simple as that outside of medicine, right? Um, And so, you know, is it absolutely worthwhile to explore other uh, opportunities? For sure. I don't regret a single thing. Um, You know, can you meaningfully combine clinical work with other opportunities? Absolutely. I've chosen not to, but many other people do successfully. Um, but yeah, I think it just requires a lot of commitment and research. Huge, huge thank you to Dr. Fiona Lander for her time. Before I do go, another quick reminder that the CCIM 2020 conference, the virtual event, is happening on the 12th and 13th of December. If you haven't already got your tickets, you can still. There is still time to go to creativecareersinmedicine.com and sign up. You can also read about the CCIM members program and all the benefits that that comes with. Uh, It's all at creativecareersinmedicine.com, so get involved. This has been an Embrace Creative production for Creative Careers in Medicine. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon with more episodes and interviews.